Hello everybody and welcome to this episode of Wolves Fancast. David Evans here. Hope you're all safe and well in the lockdown and you're keeping yourself busy. Uh, on the episode this week we're going to do something a bit different. We're going to talk about some of the surprising facts and bits of history uh, of following our team Wolverhampton Wonders that you probably never knew about. And to help me go through uh, some bits today we've got uh, Peter Crump who is one of the tour guides and a volunteer at the uh, Wolves Museum at Molyneux. Peter, how are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. No, thank you for coming on. Are you doing all uh, all good in the lockdown? Yeah, fine. Uh, just trying to keep myself busy. Just trying to make sure um, physically keep well and also mentally as well. So it's tough, tough for everybody. Good, good, I good. Good to hear. Good to hear. Right, we're gonna we're gonna talk some bits and bobs just to tease people. We're gonna talk about uh, the Stan Cullis era. Probably give a bit more of a background of of Stan Cullis in terms of who he was and why he was so successful at Wolves. Perhaps for some some of us, some younger listeners on the show, we're also gonna talk about. Uh, why Wolves had its own team in America. We'll talk about that in a bit later on in the 60s. Uh, But before we talk on the first topic, which is going to be a man called Major Frank Brookley and his use of monkey glands at Wolves, which is the one thing I really wanted to talk about and understand. Uh, Pete, just tell us a bit more about uh, the Wolves Museum. If people have never been or have never, for some reason, heard of it, uh, what is the Wolves Museum and what can uh, people see when they they go, hopefully once uh, the lockdown is over? Um, for me, the Walls Museum, and I will say this without my Walls hat on, um, it is one of the best football museums in the country. Um, it is exceptionally good. It goes through the history of the club in kind of chronological order. Um, there's lots of fantastic artefacts in there, um, lots of things that maybe people have seen on photographs, but come and see them in, in real life. We've got lots of things from the 1950s era, the 70s era but also before that we've we've even got the original notice of when the club first started um obviously the club first started in 1877 we've actually got the initial meeting notification for the original meeting that was set up to create the club in 1876 at Goldthorne Park so we pretty much got everything from day one or certainly a lot of stuff anyway and also the staff that work there, Packwork, who is our curator, um, and all the tour guides are very, very knowledgeable on the history of the club as well. <laughs> OK, let's talk about um, the first bit of surprising Wolves history, and that is one major Frank Buckley. And we're going to get into, in a bit, about why he used or seemed wanted to use monkey glands uh, at Wolves. Uh, this is a bit that's really going to interest me. But first, before we get into that bit... Give us a bit of a background. Who was Major Frank uh, Buckley and how did he come about uh, becoming part of Wolves? Well, Major Frank Buckley was, he was firstly born in Ermston, which is in Greater Manchester, um, not a million miles away from Old Trafford. um, Um, He was actually born into kind of an army family. His dad was a soldier, John Buckley. Um, so naturally, Major Buckley ended up joining the army and he joined the Manchester Regiment. Um, in 1899, it was expected that he was actually going to go and fight in the Boer War, um, but he didn't. He actually went to Ireland instead. Um, whilst he was in Ireland, he was actually serving with a guy who was a scout, Aston Villa. And during his time in Ireland, Major Buckley played a lot of cricket and he also played a lot of football. And this gentleman suggested that Major Buckley um, try, his arm, try his arm out for football. 
because he believed that he was good enough to make a professional. So in 1902, Major Buckley brought himself out of the army for a fee of £18. In 1903, he then signed for Aston Villa. Um, at that time, Aston Villa were one of the best teams in the country, uh, which might surprise people. Um, but they were. So sadly, Major Buckley didn't actually make the grade at Aston Villa. So he never actually appeared for their first team. But he did go on to be a professional footballer. He played for Brighton, Manchester United, Manchester City, Derby and Bradford. Um, when he was at Derby, he also gained one international cap. He played for England um, in 1914. And he played in our surprise loss to our, uh, sorry, Ireland. We lost 3-0 at Middlesbrough, Urson Park. And that was his only international honour. Um, but he signed for Bradford, Bradford City. This is in 1914. And he played four games for Bradford. And sadly, um, as we'll see, Major Buckley was a bit of an unlucky guy because um, sadly in 1914, the First World War broke out. So he only got chance to play for Bradford four times. Um, and then obviously football was kind of suspended. So he didn't get to carry on his career at Bradford. Um, then it really brings us into kind of why Major Buckley, the start of why Major Buckley became the manager that he was. Because um, in the First World War, he was part of the 17th Middlesex Regiment. As some of the listeners might know, this was more commonly known as the Football Battalion. Ah, uh, okay. So, and as Buckley was the highest rank um, soldier in there, he commandeered it. Um, now, a lot of footballers... A lot of footballers joined their local regiments. They didn't all join the football battalion regiment. But two of the main teams that had soldiers in that regiment were the old Clapton Orient team and also the Hearts of Middle Odeon team. Now, some um, of the listeners might remember in 2014, Hearts actually brought out a, um, a commemorative strip. And, and that was kind of a respect shown to their players that actually served in the First World War. It's for me, it's one of the best strips that's ever been worn because it was very poignant. Um, some of the, There was a lot of players that were in that football battalion. Um, probably the most famous was a guy called William Tull. Now, William Tull is famous because he was the first mixed-race player in the Football League. He played for the Tottenham Hotspur in 1909. Um, but sadly, William Tull died in 1918 in the war, so... Again, he never got to come back and play football. Um, the best way I can put this, the football battalion really, they, they did take a hammering in the First World War on the Somme. Uh, they were involved in many, many battles. Um, Major Buckley himself um, had an injury to his lung and his shoulder. And at one point he was actually sent home with what's called um, a blighty injury and that must have been pretty serious to be sent home from the first yeah, world war yeah i was going to say yeah yeah so i mean um buckley came home and then he went back um but then obviously just to put it in perspective um when major buckley played his last game for bradford in 1914 out of the 11 players that started that game there was only major buckley and one more player that came back wow from the okay so i mean it would have been horrendous what Buckley would have gone through as 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 
as everybody in the First World War. Um, but what it allowed Buckley to do in the First World War for obviously the survivors, he actually built up what, well, a, a bank of contacts. He built up people that had played the game, that knew what they were talking about, they could watch the game. So after the First World War, Buckley um, was a bit too old to be playing and probably not as fit as he used to be because of the injuries that he sustained in the war. Um, so he became the Norwich manager in 1919, but that didn't last very long. By 1920, he'd actually gone. He then became a salesman for three years before he had a chance meeting with um, Albert Hargreaves. Now, Albert Hargreaves was a director at Blackpool Football Club. And this gave Major Buckley a way back into the game because in 1923, he became Blackpool manager. And uh, he did some really quite innovative things at Blackpool. Um, things that, for me, well, are way before his time. So he's quite an innovative manager. And some of these things that these have been done by some of the greatest managers since. I mean, for example, he changed Blackpool's colours to tangerine. Oh, right, OK. Was, and that's, what they're, that's where they're known for now. Absolutely. So the chat, he changed the colours. Now, Phil Shankly did a similar thing in 1965 with the Liverpool strip. He changed the shorts so they were red. And it was both managers with similar reasons why they changed it. They felt that their team would look more imposing on the opposition. They would put fear into their opposition more. That was the reasons behind the change. He also installed a training and diet regime for the players. Um, this was a very, a very kind of military kind of system that he deployed. Obviously, Buckley would have been quite a fit man for his generation after his army service. Um, he also installed a youth system there as well. He started to recognise that you could buy players in, get players in at a young age, build them up and eventually sell them on. And I believe that some of that comes from when he was a salesman. He started to have understand that football clubs needed to run as a business as well to survive. But he was, he was really ahead of its time then, really. I mean, Massively, these, yeah. these are things that perhaps some teams only brought in maybe about, uh, about tw all the ideas, especially as, uh, from a, a youth level, from you know, 20, 20, 30 years ago. Absolutely. I mean... I mean, when, when he was Blackpool manager, the Blackpool team of that era were actually regarded as the fittest team in the game. Um, so a lot of the things that he did at Blackpool were, as you say, very unique. And this obviously came to the attention of the Walls board in 1927, and they hired Major Buckley. And he brought all those ideas to the football club, the youth scheme. He also, at Wolves, set up what we is the first scouting network at the club because a lot of clubs then would be recruiting from the local area, the local non-league scene, whereas Major Buckley had people that he'd met in the army watching games up and down the country. So it was really Major Buckley that had one of the first kind of what you'd say national scouting networks in the game. Um, he also was quite an eccentric character. He had spies out checking that his players weren't <laughs> Um, womanising, too much drinking and it's funny because I think everybody knows the story of Alex Ferguson when he was at Manchester United and he turned up at a 
think it was a party in Blackpool where Ryan Giggs and Lee Sharp were there. So again, Buckley was doing this back in the 1920s, 1930s. Sounds like a bit like Bilser. Is it Bil- Bilser at Leeds as well? The spies acting at the training. Yeah. And at Wolves, Wolves when Major Buckley turned up were not actually kind of that profitable. We weren't that. We weren't that kind of in a good state off the pitch. But I mean, in one of the seasons Major Buckley was here, we actually turned a profit over of a hundred thousand pounds, which is in those days a lot of lot of money. Um, and going back to the the players that he was bringing in and selling on. Um, at a profit, he actually sold a player in 1938 from Wolves called Bryn Jones, and we sold him to Arsenal in 1938 for a, a record transfer fee of fourteen thousand pounds. Okay, so what, so what is is there kind of what that might equate to in today's money? Is that like would, that, would that be like not, a, a massive, massive it would transfer? Be a lot of money, absolutely. Um, fourteen thousand pounds in 1938 was an extraordinary amount of money. Um, so is that mate. like in some way, I, I, I'm trying to equate this for people would that be a um, like a Gareth Bale when he went to Real Madrid yeah, without a doubt at that time yet yeah, without a doubt it actually caused a lot of um, anger between the, for the Wolves fans though there was actually reports of Wolves fans gathering outside the Waterloo Road stand on Waterloo Road actually complaining about this but Major Buckley was quite a disciplinarian. He was quite um, authoritative. And I don't think he was that bothered about what the fans had to say, to be honest, from what I've read. Um, and that obviously was the same in the team. It, you know, if you weren't doing what you were told to do, um, you weren't towing the line, um, you were gone, basically. And I think a lot of managers since then have, have taken that stance too. And one that we'll see shortly as well at Wolves. So, yeah, he was quite unique um, of his time. He did bring some success to Wolves as well. Um, in 1932, we won the Division Two Championship. Um, that was actually a massive achievement at the time because Wolves had been out of the top division since 1909. So that's 23 years. Um, and he got us back into the top division. And then... By the end of the 1930s, 1937-38, we come second in Division 1. We were only one point off the champions, Arsenal. And we come second again in 38-39, where we were three points off the champions, Everton. So it was nearly, at that time, that was the closest Wolves had come to winning a top division um, title. We also lost in the FA Cup final in 1939 as well to Portsmouth. So, um, Buckley got us to our first FA Cup final for quite for quite some time. Um, so, it was kind of really by that point we were a bit of a nearly side. We were a lot better, way better than when he took over. Um, but then, obviously, un- unfortunately for Buckley, um, he the war broke out again, World War Two. So he was had his management career disrupted, just like he did his playing career. Okay, so then before that, we have the bit that I've been wanting to talk about, the Monkey yep. Glands, uh, which is in 1937. So where where did this why, why Monkey Glands? Where did this idea come from? Why was there an idea of using Monkey Glands on players? Well, I think we've, we've mentioned that, that obviously Buckley was quite innovative for his time. He would try 
many things within reason to improve his team. Um, this kind of idea came about from um, Menzies Sharp, who was a chemist. And he originally got the idea from a Russian surgeon called Sergei Voronov. Um, Menzies Sharp approached Buckley and he was very intrigued by this idea. Um, basically, the monkey glands, it was an injection into the players and it was supposed to, the idea was to improve stamina, recovery time and also increase their performance. And um, Buckley actually tried it on himself first. Okay. And um, his words were along the lines of, he felt euphoric and energetic. <laughs> felt a lot better. So, obviously, he tried it on himself. And then he decided to roll it out to the rest of the Wolves players. Um, so, that's, that's where it came about. And there was some um, backlash, though. Firstly, from the Wolves team, there was two Wolves players that did not take part in this so-called experiment. Um, one of them was a young goalkeeper called Don Bilton, and he was only 17. And uh, it actually got to the stage where his dad came up, up the Molyneux and had a blazing row with Major Buckley and basically told him that his son is not taking part under any circumstances. Um, sadly, um, for Don Bilton, that really spelt the end of his Wolves career because he didn't really progress any further, as I said before about towing the line. Um, and the other player, the main player that didn't take part was more of a senior player at the time, was a guy called Dickie Dorset. Now, he played 10 times in the first year that we come second, and he played 35 times in the latter, the 38-39 season. So he was a way more senior pro. Um, the Monkey Glad treatment then kind of got the attention of other clubs. So we believe Tottenham Hotspur tried it. Um, Portsmouth also tried it as well. Um, and we'll come on to that in a minute because obviously we played them in the 1939 Cup final. Um, one of the teams that really got angry with us about it was Leicester City because we actually beat Leicester City 10-1. Wow. Um, wow, 10-1. After that trial had started. Um, and it got to the stage where Leicester City even complained, tried to complain to the government about it. They, they went through their local MP and they complained to the government about it. But it didn't really get much further, and it became more kind of... The press got hold of it, and it became a bit more of a joke because the press started saying things like they wish the MPs could take the monkey glands because it might improve their performance. Right, so okay. It kind of laughed out a little bit. Um, but one of the other teams that did try it was Portsmouth, and we obviously played Portsmouth in the 1939 FA Cup final. Um, it's a famous final because obviously Portsmouth won the cup, and they now have the claim to find that they held the cup for the longest because they held it throughout the war years. Yeah. Um, Wolves were massive favourites of that final, um, but we, we lost 4-1, and Portsmouth had really only just survived from Division 1. Um, but since then, that cup final has been called the Monkey Gland final because <laughs> of both teams partaking in the, in the actual experiment. So that, 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 that was quite an upset then. For Portsmouth yeah. to win it, it was, and even more um, to add to the comedy, the Wolves goal scorer that day was the man that we've just mentioned, Dickie Dorset, and he didn't have any monkey glands in him at all. So, so, so what happened then? Because obviously, obviously, this doesn't happen now, and you don't hear about this being mentioned, you know, decades and decades ago. So, 
was it what did it just end did did the idea go away was it unproven but as regards the monkey gland treatment um a lot of the teams tried it and i don't think they saw much of a difference to be honest so it did just fade out naturally and obviously the war came so football was really suspended during the war so by the time the teams come back, this 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 idea had, had already phased out, and by then it was it was old hat anyway. So it was never actually banned, um, never banned at all. It just literally just came and went. Escape your everyday with out-of-this-world action. From the gritty apocalypse of the Walking Dead universe to the cyberpunk realm of The Watch and the criminal underbelly of Gangs of London, AMC Plus is more than entertaining. It's epic. Feel all the chills and thrills with Shudder's Halfway to Halloween Month. Experience Shudder's biggest month of horror featuring a new season of Creepshow and new movie premieres every week, all available ad-free and on demand. Start your free trial today at amcplus.com. Hey, it's David here. Now, I know you. You love a bloody good website, don't you? Look, come on, you do. You like a good website. If you're on your phone, you're on your computer thinking, I want to see a bloody good website. I'm going to go find one right now. If you want a bloody good website and you want one for yourself, for your business, why don't you go check out our sponsors, pixelyetimedia.com. They don't just do websites, of course. They do loads of different things for your marketing needs, such as design work and brochures. And they do our website as well, wallsfancast.com. It's a really good design. We're really pleased with the work over at the guys at pixelyetimedia.com. So, again, you're looking at some websites, you're thinking, oh, I really want a website that looks that good just for me and my business. Why don't you go check them out right now at pixelyetimedia.com. I, I, I remember seeing it in the museum and being like, this is one of the strangest things I've ever seen in terms of monkey clans. So it's good to know what the, uh, the background of that was. Right, let's move on a bit now. Let's go on to Stan Cully's thing. Because as I mentioned, we all... You know, we're all grown up and taught about what a successful manager Stan Collis was and what he brought to yep. the side. But, you know, I'll admit as well, you, if, if you then try and ask a bit more detail about who he was and why he was so successful, I probably couldn't tell you off the top of my head. And perhaps other fans might feel that way as well. So give us a bit of a background about who Stan Collis was, um, how he came to uh, joining Wolves and, and then therefore on to... Why he was such success um, in his in his time at, at Molyneux? Well, Stan Collis was firstly joined the, the Wolves as a player. He joined us in 1934. He was signed by Major Buckley. Um, Stan Collis was actually from Ellesmere Port, which is up on Merseyside. Um, and he was playing for local junior teams around the time. And there was lots of scouts looking at Stan Collis because he was a very, very promising defender. As we as we call him, um, but Stan Collis's dad, very importantly for us, uh, was originally from Wolverhampton, and he was a mad Wolves fan. He'd been relocated up there during the times of the First World War as part of the war effort. Um, he worked in industry, 
So there was only really one club that Stan Cullis was going to sign for, and he did in 1934. He was actually told by Frank Buckley, um, if you do as I tell you, you'll be captain of the Wolves one day. And he was the captain. He did end up being our captain. Um, obviously, Stan Cullis's playing career was interrupted by the First World War, sorry, the Second World War as well. Um, so Stan Cullis was an England international. He was a very good player of his generation. After the war, he carried on playing um, for one season. Um, Frank Buckley actually resigned in 1944. Um, and he uh, was his job was taken over by Ted Vizard. And it was actually Ted Vizard. He was the manager in between Buckley and Frank Cullis that at that time got us the closest, even closer than Buckley, um, to a league title because in 1946-47 Stan Cullis was our captain um, and we went into the last game of the season and we played Liverpool at Molyneux and it's quite a famous game because literally all Wolves had to do to win the league title was win the game um, sadly we lost we lost 2-1 to Liverpool um, and that meant that Liverpool leapfrogged us but Strange as it was in football then, and this would never happen now, they didn't win the league because they had to wait for Stoke City to play their game in hand, which bizarrely was two weeks after. Right, OK. Absolutely. So all that game confirmed was Liverpool, Wolves were not going to win the league title. Liverpool were kind of on the waiting list. But Stoke did end up lo- losing that game and not winning that game they had in hand and Liverpool won the title. But... That was actually Stan Cullis' last ever competitive game for the club. And one of the Liverpool goal scorers that day was a guy called Albert Stubbins. Um, and some of you may have heard of Albert Stubbins because he, he's actually the only footballer that appears on the front cover of the Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Heart Club Band album. By the oh, Beatles. right. That's a little factoid there. So Albert Stubbins was a Geordie. He was from Wall's End in Newcastle. And he actually had the chance to join Everton or Liverpool, and he decided who to join by tossing a coin. And he joined Liverpool, sadly for us, because he scored uh, the second goal in that game. And Stan Cullis actually himself received a bit of criticism off the Wolves fans after that game because they wanted to know why Stan Cullis, he had the opportunity to bring Stubbins down when he ran through for his goal, and he decided not to. Um, the way Stan Cullis justified that was he said that he did not want to be remembered as the captain to win the league through cheating because obviously um, Cullis was massive on um, gentlemanly conduct and that kind of thing. So that was the closest since the Buckley days to the first division title. Stan Cullis then became Ted Vizard's assistant for the 47-48 season. And then at the start of the 48-49 season, he then became our manager. And that was really the start of our most iconic period. Um, so, obviously, at the end of his first year, we finished sixth in the in the first division, but we did win the FA Cup. And that FA Cup final also has another link to Major Buckley because two of the goals that day... The Wolves were scored by Jesse Pye. And Jesse Pye was actually sold to us just after the war by Buckley, who was then the Notts County manager. 
and again, he was doing what he was doing at Wolves. He sold Jesse Pye at a great profit. And Jesse Pye was really quite an important player for us at the very start of this kind of period where we were one of the best teams in the world. And then the season after, 1949-50, Stan Cullis came closer than anybody to winning the First Division League title, closer than the three times before. Um, we actually lost the league title on goal average. Now, goal, goal average? Av- yeah, yeah, that was the system that was used before goal difference came in in the mid-1970s. Goal difference first came about in the Mexico World Cup in 1970. And then it was adopted in the English game in around 1976. But goal average was very simply goals you scored divided by the goals against. Which meant that Portsmouth that year scored 74 goals and conceded 38. Wolves scored 76, two more, but we conceded 49. Which meant that we lost the league title by 0.396 goals. You imagine that happens today. Absolutely. You couldn't get over that, could you? A naught point something. Yeah, but obviously, to just to add a bit of comfort, we would still have lost on the new system too. Oh, right, OK. So <laughs> everyone everyone could be really, oh, we still would have lost, yeah. <laughs> but the famous game with Arsenal in 1989 when they won the league, they would have not won the league on goal average. So it's not always been a benefit for people obviously were they were people on twitter then chant asking for all that that to be reversed to goal average again they probably would have been yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely um, and it seems that after that then wolves really went on a, a, on, a, on, a, on a on a on a great streak under Cullis. we we did we had a couple of bar- we had a couple of dodgy seasons at the start of the 50s um, which people may not know who obviously haven't looked at it um, we did finish 14th and 16th in 50 51 and 51 52 so as regards the league, the 50s didn't start spectacularly at all. Um, I mean, in 51-52, we were nearer, nearer the relegation zone than anywhere near a league title. But then 52-53, we finished third. And then 53-54, we um, won the first our first ever first division title. And obviously, another massively important player in this period was the leader on the pitch, Billy Wright who was also signed by Major Frank Buckley in 1939. Um, he was invited to the club for an eight-week trial. And initially, Buckley didn't like the look of Billy Wright. He thought he was too small. Um, but we believe he was persuaded to give Billy Wright another chance by the well-regarded trainer at the time, Jack Davis. So he obviously got to take some credit for helping Buckley to change his mind and leaving us with our most most iconic captain ever. We then, as a lot of people know, um, 57-58 and 58-59, we won the championship back-to-back. And then in 59-60, we very nearly made it three on the spin. We were actually top um, after our last game. But Burnley um, had one game in hand at Manchester City on the Monday night after we'd finished. And simply all Burnley had to do was win the game to claim the title. And they did. They beat Manchester City. That was actually, cruelly, the only time that Burnley topped the whole division throughout the season two. <laughs> we had the two of the leagues. We'll, we'll take that. Absolutely. But obviously at that point, there was only Huddersfield Town and Arsenal that had won three leagues on the spin. So we would have been the third to do it. 
And we were then very nearly, because obviously we won the FA Cup in 1960, we were very nearly the first team to win the double of the 20th century. Um, Tottenham achieved this the year after in 61. It was very nearly us that, that did it. But obviously the 50s is also famous for the floodlights going up at the Molyneux. Yep. Um, they were massively innovative for their time. When our floodlights were put up in the very early 1950s, um, they were not allowed to be used in league games. So Cullis and everybody involved did what Buckley would have done. They became innovative and they invited a series of teams over here to play in what was called the famous floodlit friendlies. Um, and obviously, Wolves are regarded as the pioneers of European football. And it is true because... On the 13th of December 1954, we played Honbed in probably, arguably, it depends how you judge it, but our most iconic game because the Honbed team were one of the best teams in the world because they were made up predominantly of the Magars team, which were the Hungarian national team from the early to mid-50s. Now, the Magars had beaten England 7-1 in Budapest in May 1954. And the year before, they'd also thrashed us in November 53, 6-3 at Wembley. Now, pretty much every single one of those Hungarian players, bar about three, were Honbed players. So they turned up at Molyneux in 13th of December 1954. And every single one of the Honbed players that had played in the England game, um, bar the goalkeeper, played at Molyneux. And obviously Billy Wright played in the two England games, so he was fully aware of how good this side were. But we actually won the game 3-2. We were 2-0 down at half-time, and we came back and won it 3-2. And it was after that game that um, Wolves were declared champions of the world. And that headline appeared in the Daily Mail. But that didn't really go down well with everybody, particularly a French journalist called Gabriel Hanot. Um, he was um, a journalist for L'Equipe, the famous French paper, which is still going to this day. Um, and he came out with a famous quote that said, um, before Wolverhampton Wonders can be declared champions of the world, um, to cut it short, he basically said there are other teams they've got to play and they should be doing it in kind of a competitive tournament. So... It was really Hanot's quote and the Honbed game that started to bring the European Cup to life. Now, again, this had been spoken about before with Buckley and the other famous manager of Buck, going back to Buckley here at Herbert Chapman. They both predicted there would be a European tournament. But it was really this that put it into motion because in 1955, there was a Congress meeting, a UEFA Congress meeting. And then in 1955-56, the first European Cup was held. Um, and that was kind of the first five or six years where Real Madrid dominated it. And it was actually Letter Keep that picked the teams. So the first English club that were due to play in the European Cup were Chelsea, but they didn't play in 55-56. They had a lot of pressure put on them from the FA and they withdrew. And it was obviously Manchester United that were the first English team in 56-57. They then played again in 57-58, um, and that's obviously remembered tragically for the, the Munich air crash. And then we made our debut in the 58-59 tournament, and our first game was against the German side, Schalke. So, again, 
for me, without that Honved game, it really kind of put the acceleration into the European Cup idea. So there's two things, so, two things there. One, we can boast about the fact that it was us that created the Champions League. Well, we, we certainly played a massive part in it, yeah. Yeah, we, we created the Champions League. We yeah. Created, so. All right. um, yeah. The second point, so is there any reason why, if, obviously, with what the, the French journalist said at the time, uh, spurred on potentially this idea, is there any reason then why Wolves weren't the first English team invited to do it? Was it a case of where Wolves had come in the league still like we yeah. have now, or was there anything else going on? It wasn't actually based on league position. Letter Keep invited the teams. So one of the first British teams in the European Cup was actually Hibernian. They played in 55-56, and they had actually finished fifth in Scotland. So why they were invited, I just do not know. But obviously, you've got to bear in mind that the Busby Babes won two league titles on the spin before we did it. So Manchester United were the first to be invited. Um, Whether they picked them because they were the league title holders, I only assume that was the reason why. Um, and then we were invited in 58-59. And, and what's interesting, going back on to what we talked about Buckley before, obviously Cullis was a, a Buckley player, you can really see that transition in terms of the ideas and the ideals that Buckley had was probably ingrained yeah. into Cullis's mantra, then Cullis brings them on and then obviously gets gets the team to a place in which you would thought that Buckley may have got them to if it wasn't for the war. Possibly, absolutely. There's no reason why. I mean, this was a huge era of like success. I mean, Stan Cullis had many of the characteristics that Buckley had. Discipline. Um, again, you have to toe the line. Um, you have to do what Cullis wanted you to do. Um, Cullis also wanted his beha- players to behave in a certain manner. Um, don't think he would have... A man of Cullis's generation would probably think some of the footballers, not not all footballers, but some of the things that go on now would just be completely foreign to him, you know? Um, so, y- y- yeah, there's absolute similarities between Buckley and Cullis. Uh, they're all throughout both, again, char- characters without a doubt. But, again, the, the team that we added between, really, 49 and 61 um, was a fantastic side. There's no two ways about it if you read about them. I mean... There was one young lad, for example, who watched the Honved game, um, a young lad in Belfast who went round his neighbours, Mr Hitchcock, to watch it on the BBC. And that was George Best. George Best actually first saw Wolves play in those floodlit friendlies, and that's why George Best's hero was Peter Broadbent, who is another iconic, fantastic player from that generation. So, for me, if George Best thought you were a good footballer in Broadbent's case and thought you were a good side, that's good enough for me. And also... Our goalkeeper from the early part of that period, Bert Williams, obviously Malcolm Finnelson came in in the latter part. But um, um, again, another young lad in, in Sheffield growing up that would go and watch Wolves every time they played at Bramall Lane or Hillsborough was Gordon Banks. And Gordon Banks's um, kind of respect for Bert Williams, the cat, lasted for the whole of Bert Williams's life. He was still going to see him every week right up until he passed away. So. For me, pioneers of European football, we've got Gordon Banks in our corners, arguably the greatest goalkeeper ever to play the game, and George Best. We know obviously George Best didn't fulfil his potential, but he's definitely regarded as one of the most naturally gifted footballers that the British Isles has ever produced. So if you've got them two in your corner, they must have been good. 
Exactly, exactly. I wonder what Buckley and Cullis would have thought of VAR today. That'd be an interesting one. Um, they wouldn't have sworn about it because neither of them used to swear, but there would have probably been a few flips and flops in yeah, there. Yeah, been choice, choice words for yeah. it. Uh, right, let's talk, talk about the, the, the last bit of Surprise History, which is one that when I've been to the museum, I can, I can never get my head around about why this came about. It's LA Wolves. Wolves, basically, at the, in the 60s, went over to America and formed yep. a side called LA Wolves and played in America. It wasn't like it was a separate yep. uh, team, as it were. It was actually Wolves playing in America and made it into like, this LA Wolves team. So I'm, I'm really intrigued about this one. Why, so give us some, some background. Where, why did this idea come about for Wolves to go to America rebrand themselves within LA and, and play football in America? Basically, the Wolves team of the 1960s weren't obviously nowhere near as good as the one from the 50s. And that's not being disrespectful to any of the players because they had hard acts to follow. Those players, anyone who presented us in the 60s, were automatically going to be judged um, to the guys from the 50s and the very early 60s. But for example, when, when we went to LA in 1967, we had literally just got re-promoted to the top division. We'd finished second in Division 2 behind Coventry City, who were the champions, and we'd had two years in the second division. Um, and basically, the LA Wolves came about by the United Soccer Association were going to start their league in 1968 in, the, in, the, in America, the Soccer League. Um, this was all led by a guy called Jack Kent Cook, who was a bit of an entrepreneur. He was also the owner of the LA Lakers. Um, now, you have to forgive me. LA Lakers, are, a, are they a basketball team? Or Yeah, they are. Yeah. With American sport. But um, I know they're a well, obviously a well-famous name. Um, and he was kind of the main guy behind the United Soccer Association. Um but then what happened was a rival organisation uh, called the National Professional Soccer League decided that they were going to bring their, their league forward. So basically what Jack Kent Cook wanted to do is he wanted to get in on the app first. So he brought forward the inaugural United Soccer Association League to May, June, July 1967. He wanted to get in on the act first. But they obviously had a major problem because they had no teams and no players so um, they had to address that because how can you have a league without players and teams so what they decided to do is get teams from all around the world to go and play and represent the cities that they were playing in so, so sorry so, so was in some ways the idea of that then of um, giving people a taste of what Amer- football could be like in America you know, we've got these teams coming over. This is what it'd be like if you invest in it. You can have your own teams, and, and this is what uh, football or soccer could be like. Kind of the first kind of move towards when we saw a lot of players just after that era go over to America. Obviously, um, Phil Lothbard, our goalkeeper, ended up playing towards the late end, late end of the 70s. He played for Vancouver Whitecaps. Pele played for the New York Cosmos. This was all the, all the, the start of that. Uh, there was 12 teams invited. Um, have a look at the 12 teams that are listed but the ones that stand out are obviously the English team Stoke they played under the guise of the Cleveland Strokers Okay. Dundee United with Dallas Tornado 
um, nice. hit Toronto City, and Sunderland were the Vancouver Royal Canadians. Um, yeah, I've got some other teams here you've sent me. So you've got uh, Dundee United uh, yeah. on here. Were they, were they Dallas Tornado? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a great name. Um, who else we've got on here? We've got um, Hibernian, who were Toronto City. Uh, Shamrock Rovers were Boston Rovers. Uh, who else we've got here? We've got other divisions as well. So we were in. We were in. Which division were we in? Uh, the the Western or the Eastern? Well, you actually played everybody once. So it was one big league, but the standings were divided into two at the end. Bizarrely, obviously, American sports never very straightforward, is it? And nor was this. So. I think you played every team twice, and then after about nine games, you played the team that was next to you in the in the in the divisional standings. So we played Den Haag twice. They're the only team that we played twice. And Den Haag were the San Francisco Golden Gate Gales. They were, and at the end of the nine games, they were second behind us. In so first played second, second played third, and so on. But there was another team that we played twice, and that was. Well, we played them three times in the end. We played Aberdeen, who were the Washington Whips. Um, Washington Whips? Absolutely. Who comes Aberdeen. up with these names at the time? Absolutely. Now, the, the actual standard league game where we, when we played Aberdeen, uh, we actually broke the rules and we filled, fielded three substitutes. Now, most leagues would probably just dock you the points or kick you out, but they decided to replay this game at the end of the standard league games. So we did play Aberdeen twice too. And then because Aberdeen topped the Eastern division and we topped the Western, we played them again in the final. And there was literally a toss of a coin whether it was the final was going to be played in Washington or LA because Wolves were based actually at the LA Coliseum. And Wolves won the toss. So the final was actually played at LA Coliseum. And we won 6-5. The game actually lasted 126 minutes. Wow, okay. And at 5-5, it went to golden goal, and David Burnside scored our goal, and we won the, the trophy. So we were United Soccer Association champions 1967. So did it, did this all take place in a summer, then, like you would have as a major yeah. tournament? It wasn't outside of a, you know, the Wolves didn't go away into this while the league was carrying on. So literally, we come second in the second division, and by the looks of it, we just jetted out to the States, and then we were back by kind of mid-July, back ready for the next season. Okay, okay. <laughs> just bizarre. Every, just hearing about this, is just if you think about this happening now, there'd be absolute uproar. You know, if Wolves or any other team went out and like formed a version of a side in for yep. a few months, there'd be absolute uproar. Um, there's a, for some of the, the notes you sent me as well, this kind of happened again, a couple of years later, and Wolves were a different side for Kansas City. One of the things that did happen in 1967, which is really important to point out, is um, we did win the, the league, and it was nice to win it. But for me, the most important thing that happened from that tour was in the final against Aberdeen, um, Aberdeen had a, hat-trick, had a hat-trick scored for them, and that was scored by Frank Monroe. And obviously, Frank Monroe... Not long after, it was a few months, but not long after, joined the Wolves. And obviously, Frank Monroe then became one of our, well, one of the stalwarts of our early 1970s to mid-1970s team. A, a player that's obviously a hero amongst some of the Wolves out there, without a doubt. Um, 
Um, he brings us a little just to briefly mention the coach that was in 1967 was Ronnie Allen. Now, Ronnie Allen was a West Brom Albion legend because he'd scored lots of goals from in the 1950s. Um, but what Ronnie Allen did, he, he did end up getting the sack in November 1968. We weren't that great in, back in the first division, but he did leave us with quite a lot of very important players. He signed Derek Dugan, Mike Bailey, Derek Parkin, and his last his last piece of business, literally as he was walking out the door, um, was he gave £5,000 to Bradford Park Avenue, and that was for a guy called Kenny Hibbett. <laughs> so... He left a lot of building blocks yeah. in place for what ended up happening a few years after that. Uh, so, so, uh, so, so what happened then briefly afterwards then with this American tour? As I mentioned, it sounds like the Wolves then in 1969 formed yeah. a different team, but this time for Kansas City. Yeah, so we went back to the States in 69. Um, it was kind of a smaller league. So um, there, was, there was only five teams in it. Um, Aston Villa went out to this one they were the Atalanta Chiefs West Ham the Baltimore Bays Kilmarnock the St Louis Stars and the two teams the only two teams that featured in both 67 and 69 were us but this time we were the Kansas City Spurs and Dundee United they were Dallas Tornado so on, do, were we wearing different kits were we still wearing our colours even for the, the previous one in LA or were we having to wear different colour kits to represent uh, that, that city you might have seen pictures in 1967. If you look at the pictures, um, the actual number of the um, the number is actually on the front of the shirt. So it's, it looks pretty much like the standard wool shirt that we were wearing. Because in that era, we also wore gold shorts for about four, three or four years. Um, but if you look at pictures from 1967, the actual players have got the numbers on the front of the shirt. It looks quite bizarre. Okay. And did we have to, so, did we have to change that again for Kansas City or was that kept the same? I'm not sure what we wore in Kansas City, but what you've got to bear in mind by 1969, the actual American League was actually being played. This was actually an international league, so it was a kind of offset from the uh, main okay. division. So we played all of them teams, and we also played our hosts, we played Kansas City first, their first team as well. So, But the league was a bit bizarre, because it was six points for a win, three points for a draw and you got a point for every goal you scored and that was capped at three goals a game so it's <laughs> okay. a bit crazy oh okay capped at three jeez yeah yeah <laughs> so you could run i mean if you were that good you could run away with the league after a couple of wins absolutely i mean um we did do the double over aston villa uh, which is the highlight for me other than the fact that we won it again as well so Champ- Although the 60s weren't as good as the 50s, we can still say that we were champions of America twice and we beat Villa um, twice in 1969, which should always be remembered for me. So that was what, the North American Soccer League International Cup? That's what we won in 69? That's what we won in 69, yeah. Well, I never knew. And then uh, just before we, we, we wrap up on this episode, it's not just obviously America that we had you know, famous times of, of going abroad. I can see as well we had some tours in South Africa as well. Well, yeah, obviously by this point we'd been to Europe countless times. That goes right the way back to even the Buckley days. But as regards going out of Europe, um, Wolves played a huge, there were humongous tours in 1951, particularly in South Africa. We played something like 13 games 
in six weeks and we, we must have travelled about nearly 4,000 miles. Can you imagine, again, today, we, you know, playing 13 games in six weeks, the uproar. Yeah. I mean, think of Nuno talking about the uh, yeah. the fitness of the players. Well, they probably would have been fine knowing how fit our players are at the minute, but 13 games in six weeks. What, what's really important to remember is well, the South Africa tours of 51 and 57 were both post-season tours. Post-season? season and went out to South Africa. Jeez. So you've just had in a... What, what would have sorry, been a game season? How many games in a season back then? It would have been very similar to what it is now. I mean, there would there was a few more teams. I think there was 24, was there, in the top division then? Okay. 22, 24. So there was a 46, 46 game season. Have a cup, then, have maybe a week break. And then let's go, let's land fly to South Africa and play 13 yeah. games in six weeks. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... We played, I say, we played the 13 games, roughly 13 games in 51, and we played some a lot eight in 57, but that also took in Rhodesia. So in 57, Wolves played in both South Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe, and we played in North Rhodesia, which is now Zambia as well. So although there was less games, the travelling was still as bad. And then obviously we played in Russia in 55, and we we also played in the States in 1963 on a on a small tour as well so that was kind of the first time we was in the states and these two that we've just mentioned are the two and three we also toured the caribbean in 64 as well and again that was a power season tour so we had traveled can you imagine us planning a, a even a pre-season tour of Carib- the caribbean now that'd be fantastic i mean the amount of loyalty points you'd need to get over there Absolutely. still be one but that'd be incredible the caribbean tour i guess it, what's really interesting about that is you know, growing up as a fan, you own, you start to realise how Wolves have this big worldwide fan base, yeah. um, and these tours would have probably really helped grow that and have instil a of a, a generational worldwide fan, fan base. Um, why we've got so many kind of fans dotted all over the world. I think that's um, that's a bit of everything for me. I mean, obviously the fifties play a part in that because we were one of the best teams around. I know a lot of our um, fan base from Scandinavia. That comes from that we were one of the first televised games in Scandinavia in '69, and I think one of the reasons why we've got a massive Swedish supporters group in particular is a lot of those guys in '69 when they saw the wall strip on the telly, it was it was kind of mesmerising the colour, and I think that's one of the reasons why. Another reason why we've got fans from everywhere. Is right with the, with the South Africa tour as well. Is there any reason why it was post season? Was that just a thing to do? Was there a a reason why we wanted to play games out there? I don't know. Is the honest answer to that because obviously football then wasn't like it is now. We didn't have a, like a pre season tour every year. There was years where we didn't go anywhere, and then there was maybe two, three on the spin where we travel miles. Um, and knowing you know. The, the kind of the second division years in the sixties, we didn't go that far. Uh, you know, it was it was a strange one, really. But obviously, even me, I was surprised that we went all the way to South Africa in fifty one. That's really really early. <laughs> Uh, well, what I'll say, Pete, is thank you very much. We'll, we'll, we'll leave it there. But some really, really interesting things about Wolves history that I never knew. Obviously, there's bits of, I've seen when I've been to the museum, but then I've, you know, I didn't know the detail of what happened. Especially that 
that Wolves LA one to always to me I could never understand why that happened and what the backstory was with that but some really interesting ones there uh, thank you very much for taking the time out to speak to us on that I really appreciate it is there any before we finish is there any kind of really bizarre or interesting facts about Wolves that's no, never really talked about that's your personal favourite well I, I always thought that Patrick Catroni was the only ever Italian to play for us okay Fred Kemp, who played for us in the 60s, was was born in Salerno in Italy. So he is kind of the only ever Italian to play for us, but he isn't. So it just depends on how how you want to take that. Were they singing Uh, the Pizza Passer song back then, though? That's my question. I don't think so. Not for (laughs) Fred Kemp, no. I don't think so at all. Um, But uh, I'd just like to say to all the fans out there, um, this is a tough period we're in. And just make sure that you're all looking after one another. Keep your physical health as best it can be. And most importantly, your mental health. Because um, I know there's a lot of people struggling out there. And we can get through it. And we will be back at the Molyneux as well. No, indeed. That's a really good message. Thank you for that, Pete. Uh, thank you very much, Pete, for taking the time out and telling us some interesting Wolves uh, history there. If there's anything else you'd like to find out, perhaps we could do another episode like this. Get in touch with this podcast at wolvesfancast.com or uh, get us in contact on the social media. Uh, just type in wolvesfancast and you'll find us there. If there's anything more you'd like to find out about Wolves' history, and we could revisit it on, on another episode with, with Pete. Pete, thanks for taking the time out. Yeah, sure. I really thanks. appreciate yeah. it. Uh, and from, from, from myself, uh, we'll see you next time.